0: Mark chapter 13 verses 1 through 23. We have now come to a passage that is probably one of the most debated in all of Scripture. Uh, This morning I will not be going through all of the different debates and uh, bore you with a lecture on uh, who believes in what. Uh, This morning I will give you my position on the text and what I've learned from the text and what I believe it is saying to Christians today. Today. So with that said, it's probably going to be a longer sermon than usual. I apologize ahead of time. But there's a lot of information here and we don't want five sermons uh, giving the same message every week. Uh, We want one clear message of what the Lord is telling his church to do. So uh, we are going to cover all 23 verses this morning. Here for this is the word of the Lord. And as he, that is Jesus, came out of the temple... And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations." For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In our text this morning, it is the day before Jesus is to be betrayed and arrested. And as Jesus came out of the temple... One of his disciples was admiring the outward beauty of the temple and said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Herod the Great was said to have expanded the temple to about double the size of Solomon's construction. And now Jesus has been teaching his disciples about how it is not all about outward appearances and how the kingdom of God was a spiritual kingdom. So this disciple was obviously not listening. Israel had put their hopes in the rituals and worldly splendor of the temple. And instead of it being a symbol of faith, it became an obstacle of faith. And this wasn't the case only for Israel or uh, Jerusalem. It was also the case for his own disciples. They would ask Jesus, what about the restoration of Israel? What about the restoration of the nation of Israel? Well, Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple back when he cursed the fig tree, and now he foretells the temple's ultimate fate. After answering question after question, coming from the religious elites, this becomes his mic drop moment. He has the final say. And this comes after he proclaims seven woes or seven curses on these religious leaders for not placing their faith in what or who the temple ultimately pointed to. He says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now that the Messiah has come, the temple has become useless. It will be replaced with a heavenly temple, one not made with hands. Now, Jesus is very popular at this point, even though he has made many shocking statements. But this statement is the most shocking statement that he has made so far. And it is believed to be the reason why the people would later turn on him. To God's people, the temple was the sign of God's presence and favor. So if the temple was torn down, that would be a sign that God is no longer for them and that the end is actually near. So the shock of this statement leads the disciples to ask him some questions. Now, they follow him as a Jesus, who is the glory of the Lord, departs the temple and he heads east to the Mount of Olives, where the famous Olivet discourse takes place. And it begins when Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Peter's brother, asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, they're not just asking, uh, when will the temple be destroyed? But also, what will be the sign of Jesus' return and of the end of the age? We find that in Matthew chapter 24. One aspect of Jesus' teaching that Mark doesn't cover is that he tells them he will be going away soon and he will be making a home for them. So they're asking him, when will all this be over? When will he return with the kingdom and take them with him? When will the temple be rebuilt and Israel restored? Because this sounds hopeless to the average Israelite. This is judgment on God's own people. Will God not show mercy? Now throughout the years, uh, many Christians have been obsessed with questions about the end times. To the extent that they even try to put a date on Jesus' return. How does Jesus answer this question? Well, he doesn't give them a date. He gives them signs. He gives them a mixed prophecy. Uh, I say mixed prophecy because uh, some of what he says applies specifically to the disciples at that time. While at the same time, much of what he says still applies to the church universally throughout the entire age, which would include us today. So if we were to summarize what he says here, we would say... There will be trouble specifically for the church in this world until Jesus returns. Again, there will be trouble for the church until Jesus returns. Now, he doesn't give us these signs to alarm us, as uh, some have treated these signs. He doesn't give us these signs so that we could uh, speculate or turn on the news and uh, read our Bibles at the same time to try to figure out where we are exactly or who is who or uh, when is when. But he gives us these signs to not only warn us, but also to comfort us and reassure us that God is in control and that he will be returning soon. He is reassuring us that he doesn't leave us to ourselves. But first, Jesus answers their question by telling them of the signs of the end of the age. Here he speaks as a prophet. So based on his language, he suggests that this will not only happen during the apostles' time, but this is for all time and for us as well until his return. These are reoccurring events, that is, they are repeated throughout history. And he describes these signs as the beginning of birth pains. Paul says we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Mothers would know that birth pains are referring to what doctors call contractions. Do contractions occur only once during a pregnancy? Some would wish that was the case. But no. Contractions occur over and over again. And in between the pain there are times of rest and peace. But as you get closer to giving birth, the pain gets worse and the contractions occur closer together. So, these are meant to occur over and over again, like contractions, until the new birth that we will experience when Christ returns. So, first, he tells them there will be false Christs or false Saviors. He says, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. Secondly, There will be wars and natural disasters. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but again the beginning of the birth pains. And after these birth pains begin, he tells his disciples that for them, there will be persecution. First, he tells them they will be persecuted by the religious leaders and by the government. He says, but be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And we know this happens time and time again throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 6 and 7, Acts chapter 12, 14, 16, 21 through 26. Secondly, families will be divided over the truth of the gospel. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Uh, We know this is true from the warning of Jesus that he did not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword to divide whole households over the truth of the gospel. Sadly, many of us know this by experience. Today we see great division in our world. But little do we recognize that Jesus Christ is the greatest source of division. And these divisions will continue to take place until the last day when Jesus returns and divides believers from unbelievers. And thirdly, and the reason for the division, is that they will be hated by all for the name of Christ. Although these signs are fulfilled in the book of Acts, in the apostles' lifetime, they continue to be general signs for the church today. There is persecution around the world, Families are divided over the truth of Jesus Christ, and Christians are hated for the name of Christ all around the world today. But before you fall into despair and believe that this is all about doom and gloom, let us not forget that Jesus also encourages them in the midst of these trials. He reassures them that God is sovereign, that His plan will be fulfilled, and that He will be their present help as they go through persecution. All things are under His control. First, He reassures them of God's sovereignty, and that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This was initially fulfilled in the book of Acts, when they were all in the upper room on Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit came upon them. Uh, The divided tongues of fire were uh, above them and they started to preach the gospel in known languages. And the gospel was miraculously preached so that the people of Jerusalem from all nations heard them speak in their own tongue. Secondly, Jesus reassures them that when they are brought to trial and delivered over, they are not to be anxious about what they are to say but they are to say whatever is given to them in that hour he says for it is not you who speak but the holy spirit again this occurs in the book of acts uh, think of when peter was brought before the jewish council made up of the rulers elders and scribes and high priests and they ask him by what power or by what name are you performing these signs He responds to them and it says, As he is filled with the Holy Spirit, it is by the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We see this also in the case of Stephen, when he spoke in the Spirit and preached before he was stoned to death. Now these signs were to take place when Jesus went away. And when he went away, he promised to grant them his Spirit to enable them to preach and defend the gospel. Now this was to prove a few things. First, it was evidence of his resurrection, and that he now sits at the right hand of his father. Secondly, it was evidence that he was with them. And thirdly, it was a sign that one day he would return for them. What more encouragement can you ask for when Jesus says, Yes, you will go through suffering for my sake in this world, but I will be there with you. This promise extends to us today. When we're going through suffering, and when we're going through various persecutions of varying kinds, his promise is that he is there with us. God is present with His people, no matter the suffering. And through these signs, and though they do happen during the disciples' lifetime, and much of what happened in Acts was a one-time event, like what happened at Pentecost wasn't meant to be repeated, yet there are elements of what occurred that are still true for the church today. The gospel is to continue to spread, as was given in the Great Commission, and God will be present to empower us in the spread and defense of that gospel. And the spread of the gospel is still a sign of His return today. But that is not the end. Secondly, He gave them signs of the end of the age, and now He also gives them signs of the end of Jerusalem as they knew it. He gives his disciples a time marker to look out for. He answers their question, when will these things be? By saying, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. He is saying, at this point, you are to consider Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12, verse 11, speaks of the abomination that makes desolate. At that time, it was interpreted that the abomination in Daniel is speaking of when false gods would be set up in the temple. Uh, The worship of false gods would make the worship of the true God desolate or deserted. They believed it was fulfilled in 163 B.C., when Antiochus IV Epiphanes set up an altar to the Greek god Zeus in the temple. But Jesus clarifies here that it was also yet to be fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, at the hands of the Romans, three days before Passover. After he proclaims the curses on the leaders of Jerusalem, he laments over Jerusalem and says, see your house, that is, the temple is left to you desolate. Luke's account helps us interpret what this sign will be when Jesus says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then its desolation has come near. That's the sign. That's the sign. So at that point, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop. uh, In Judea, the the roofs were used as porches at the time. It says, do not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. That means don't bother packing up. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. This event will be the worst sacking that Jerusalem has ever seen or will see. The devastation has been recorded in history from famine to infant cannibalism as a result of the destruction. That's how evil the sacking of Jerusalem was in 70 AD. But he grants them comfort once again. And it says, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, He shortened the days. Meaning for the sake of the Christians who were still in Jerusalem, He cut short the days so that they would retreat and continue to spread the gospel. This is actually recorded in history. This happened. They would later remember Jesus' words and flee. And it is in this context of such a cataclysmic event that false Christs and false prophets will take advantage of the situation. He repeats himself and warns again. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Now, although this was fulfilled in 70 AD, this is expected to happen again and again. What he says here goes beyond the destruction of Jerusalem. I say this because in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, he goes on to say that after these things... All the earth will see the coming of the Son of Man. Everyone will see the coming of the Son of Man. That hasn't happened yet. So this is not just about the destruction of Jerusalem, but it is also referring to what will occur again and again until the return of Christ on the last day. There are double or multiple fulfillments Much like the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. For example, in the Psalms, you'll have a prophecy that speaks about David specifically, but it is also referring to Christ. Or there are prophecies about Isaiah in the book of Isaiah, but they are also speaking about Christ. Same with this prophecy. It happened in 70 AD, and it is going to happen again in the last days before the last day. How? First, it is to be fulfilled again in the final Antichrist. Because the abomination of desolation is not just speaking of the Roman Empire destroying the temple, but it is also speaking of the Antichrist of all Antichrists who is to come in the last days. Uh, Paul says to the effect that the Lord will not return until the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction who exalts himself to be God, is revealed. And this Antichrist will be equipped by the power of Satan to perform false signs and wonders to deceive unbelievers who refuse to love the truth. Secondly, it is fulfilled in the fact there will be false Christs or Antichrists and false prophets who also perform signs and miracles to lead people astray from the truth of Jesus Christ. Because there is not just one antichrist, but there are many antichrists in this world. And there will be those in the church who will be deceived by Satan to worship the beast and its image as recorded in Revelation 20. Which describes the abomination of desolation on steroids. Now what should we ask as believers as to why does he give his disciples, and all of us these signs. Well, he is saying that what he describes in all of these signs, the signs of the times, applies to all time in this world. He is describing the past, the present, and the future characteristics of the world we are living in. So we are living in the last days. These are signs that will occur From the cross to His return. From the cross to His return are the last days. There will be tribulation for the church always in this world. It is to happen in small forms. And finally, on a larger scale, universally. What happened in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is a rehearsal of the last judgment when Jesus returns. It happened in the times of the apostles, it happened in the early church, and it happens all the way down to us today. This is what the church is to expect in the world. There is no spreading of the gospel, and there is no growth of the kingdom without the forces of darkness running parallel Against us. There is no church growth without tribulation and persecution. As I said earlier, there will always be trouble for the church in this world until he returns. In fact, persecution often fuels growth. But ultimately, he tells us all of these signs to reassure us that he has already won the battle. He has already won the war. So that means his people have already won. Are we victorious now? Yes, but not yet. We have already won, but not yet. Because we are in a race to the finish line. This is meant to encourage us to persevere, because he will have the last say. In fact, he already has the last say. So this leads me to a few points of application from this text. Because the same enemy that was at work against his disciples back then is the same enemy that is at work against us today. And we don't battle against flesh and blood But we fight a spiritual battle against spiritual darkness. We must be reminded of this today. But throughout this section on the signs, there are warnings and encouragements scattered throughout this passage. And they are to be applied to us now as it was then. So in waiting for Christ's return, Christian... We are first to see that no one leads you astray with false teachings by false Christs. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, or I am the Christ. According to Scripture, to be an antichrist, or a false Christ, or even a false Christian, is to either deny Jesus as the only Christ, or it is to claim to be Christ. Or on the same level as Christ. How many people of how many religions claim that today? There are eastern religions that claim that man's destiny is to become a Christ. Cults all around the United States believe this. Christ is just a title for us to attain based on lifestyle principles. This is what they falsely interpret the Bible to say. And there can be volumes upon volumes of books written that would record the countless people in history who have claimed to be the second coming of Jesus. Some religions claim that their gods are versions of Christ like Krishna of Hinduism. But Jesus says, see or discern that you may not be led astray. There is no other Christ but Jesus. We often treat our leaders, such as presidents and celebrities, as if they are mini-saviors here to save us. Some people treat so-called believers of the past, who perform signs and wonders, as if they are on the same level as Christ. There was one guy a couple of decades ago who uh, dressed like he was Jesus. He had Uh, marks on His hands and feet and performed miracles and He claimed to be the second coming of Christ. Just a few weeks ago, there was another news article that said they found the second coming of Jesus. But just like Jesus warned us, and if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there He is, do not believe it. Because if He returns... Believe me, you'll know it. Everyone on the planet will know it and everyone will see Him. That will be the last day of this world. During the Apostles' time, there was a heresy that taught that Jesus had already returned in a secret rapture. The Bible doesn't know anything about a secret rapture. Paul says if anyone says he has already come, don't believe it. The funny thing is many Christians believe in a secret rapture today. He says if someone says there he is, don't believe it. Today Christians are labeled as Close minded, which translates to our culture as being bigoted. But thinking through what we believe and being closed minded is a command from Jesus Himself. He says, Don't believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. This world is always telling us to relax, go with the flow. Become friends with the world. Be humble and have an open mind. Consider other truths. But Jesus repeatedly says in this text, be on guard. See that no one leads you astray. And if someone claims there is another way and another Jesus, don't believe it. This goes to prove that even if someone performs miracles, signs, and wonders, it doesn't mean they are from God. God. It doesn't mean they are from God. So, what do we do when we see signs and wonders, maybe even UFOs? Go back to the Word of God for direction. And Jesus said, Don't believe it. To some, that sounds borderline atheistic. Because we can't place our faith in spiritual experiences or signs and wonders. They'll ask, well, don't you believe in miracles? Yes, of course we do. We believe in miracles. But we no longer need signs and wonders because we have the word and we have the spirit. Everything we need to know has already been revealed. The secret things belong to the Lord. But what has been revealed in his word belongs to us. Case closed. Secondly, he says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. We live in a society today that thrives on alarm. There are many false prophets making tons of profit on alarming others. There's always a new book about the next war or the next big event that will lead to the end of the world. It's the end of our country. How how often do we hear that on the news? Jesus says, don't be alarmed. The news reporters have no idea what they're talking about and they have no idea what's going on. They can't tell the future and the end is not yet. Don't be alarmed. It is not the end of the world yet. But instead we go out and buy the guy's book and believe what the next guy is saying. But Jesus says, don't be alarmed at the wars. This has been happening since Cain and Abel and it is going to continue to happen. But the end is not yet. Remember, he is not trying to alarm us. But to warn and to comfort us. He is saying, when we see these wars, it is a sign of his return. Thirdly, in addition to be on your guard, he says, do not be anxious. Why? Because, uh, yes, persecution is coming from your family, from your friends, even from those in the church and from those in power. You will need to have your guard up. And you don't need to be anxious about what you will say in response to their hatred because he will be there with you. These are not signs of God's absence. He is not absent when others persecute you. But these are signs of Christ's coming and His presence is with us now. Be reassured that when you are persecuted, He is right there and He will appear very soon, just as He appeared to Stephen when he was stoned. And fourthly, The church must continue in her call to preach the gospel to all nations. The church's primary mission is the spread of the gospel. And it has always been the spread of the gospel. We can't get distracted by what's going on in the world or by the decay of the culture. We're not here to solve all the problems of the world So we're here not to get distracted or to make our message fit what's going on in society. Our gospel is to continue to spread. The gospel of our Lord. We are here as witnesses to Jesus Christ and his gospel. Fifthly, when persecutions come, he says we are to endure it. He's saying don't stray from this teaching. Continue this course. Remain on the narrow path. They can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. And this leads to his encouragements and comforts from his promises. Because it's not only in our power that we persevere. There is the encouragement that the gospel will spread despite persecution. It will continue to spread. There is the promise that when we endure persecution, he will be with us through it all. There is the promise that if we endure to the end, we will be saved. But again, it is not in our own power. Because there is the comfort in knowing that in the midst of this great tribulation, God is mindful of us and that He will cause us to endure. He will preserve us. As He says, for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days of tribulation we ought to be encouraged by this because he grants us the power to endure and he preserves his people to the end. That's why I always say that that doctrine of the perseverance of the saints should be changed to the preservation of the saints. Because it is God who holds us. It's not up to us. It is God who causes us to endure. And it is God who gives us exactly what we need. And not more Than what we can handle. Also. The last comfort. Is that all of this suffering. Leads to the return of our savior. For the slight momentary affliction. Is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen. Many Christians are distracted by what they are seeing today but the things that are unseen. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. This is what this passage is all about. This is what he is trying to tell his disciples. Now may he grant us the grace to endure to be watchful, and to be on guard against the powers of darkness. For he has the victory won for us, as he will soon crush Satan under our feet. Amen.